You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette. We're here to discuss national security issues in the news and give you critical baseline information. Whether you've been practicing national security law for years, you're a journalist trying to understand the law, or you're a non-lawyer eager to improve your understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. So let's get started. And remember, during the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topic on our website. At the end of the podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on our Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. In about a month, you can come to the annual conference on national security law, November 1st and 2nd at the Hilton in Washington, D.C., and the time to sign up is now. So, how do we sign up, Yvette? Well, Elisa, you can sign up online by going to our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, and click on the 28th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law. And it's affordable, not like some of those conferences that are thousands and thousands of dollars, especially right now, um, if you sign up for early registration rates, and there are some scholarships But if people would prefer to call Nicole... Sure, you can always call the ABA Service Center at 800-285-2221. That's 800-285-2221. All right. Well, today we're going to look at blockchain, which you may have heard of in the context of virtual currency, such as the one known as Bitcoin, And blockchain legal issues are growing like mold in a basement after a flood. And lawyers that don't understand what it is and how it's used may find themselves stumped by the legal and national security implications of blockchain, virtual currency, and this iconic technology that's only growing. So our guest tonight is Steve Bunnell, who is presently an attorney with the law firm of O'Melveny & Myers, and he is the former general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks so much to, for coming. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, podcasts are the way I first got interested in blockchain, so it's, uh, it's particularly appropriate that uh, I get to talk about it on a podcast. Full circle. <laughs> All right, so let me throw out a cool, uh, I mean, obviously you're the former general counsel of DHS, which is a heavy hitter in the cyberspace, and so um, I'm sure that you've been working in this space long enough that, um, quite frankly, you're one of the leading authorities at this point. Um, But let me also say, you are an awesome AUSA in the District of Columbia. You are also uh, in the main justice section, which deals with um, public integrity, where you were a prosecutor for a number of years. Um, You attended Stanford Law School, and you're just, uh, frankly, quite frankly, an all-around brilliant and nice guy. So we're super glad to have you today. 
Um, I'd like to pivot for just a second and get right into what in the heck is this stuff? Because when people hear blockchain technology, it sounds a little bit like Minecraft. Um, but what is it, and really, how is it used? Well, thank you, Elisa. That was an a introduction only my mother would uh, find <laughs> incredible. <laughs> um, and sincerely follow those, you, and you know that. Well, as you, as you no doubt know, we go back a ways, so you're... Uh, you're very kind. Um, you know, blockchain is actually a lot of different things. Uh, it's the technology, as you noted, that underlies Bitcoin. And many people think of Bitcoin when they think about how blockchain technology is used. But there, there actually is a wide range of, of use cases that go far beyond Bitcoin. Uh, and most of the other use cases are still theoretical or in early stages of development. Um, I, I sometimes think it's useful to think in terms of two basic types of uses. Um, one is as a technology that uses cryptography and economic incentives to enable the secure transfer of value over the internet. So you, as a shorthand, you can think internet money. Uh, and, this, and then the second, um, which is a little more of a mouthful, is as a decentralized, shared, immutable database that all, you, all users can write to, but that once a data, data entry has been made, it can't be changed. Except kind of like Wikipedia or something? No. Well, a little bit like Wikipedia, except there's a group consensus mechanism that helps to secure it. I, sort of as a shorthand, I think, uh, you know, you could say Internet accounting or maybe Google Dropbox without the Google part, right. if that makes sense. Um, but it's, uh, I, I think the, the key point is that it's much more than just Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is really the first variation of a technology that uh, I think will flourish in many different directions as it as it grows. It's kind of like a spreadsheet, right? Where everybody's, there's all these different transactions and everybody agrees that this is the transaction that's happened, right? Yeah, I think that's an aspect of it. Uh, it's a spreadsheet that, that um, a, a decentralized group can contribute to and then there's a, there's a mechanism within the software that allows it to be verified without a single person sort of being the controller of the spreadsheet. So how do you get access to the spreadsheet? Well, it depends on the type of blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, if you're talking about sort of a Bitcoin type or Ethereum type blockchain, which is an, an open blockchain, you basically just download the software and sign up. And, uh, and then everybody can see the ledger or the, the database and, uh, and you can transact uh, on it, um, once you once you it, it's open, anybody can participate. So how do I, if I'm downloading my software, how do I uh, send you ten Bitcoin? Like, where did the Bitcoin come from, and like, how do I send it to you? Well, first of all, you have to have the Bitcoin mm -hmm. in order to send it. That's actually <laughs> one of the key parts of the technology is that it. It requires, through cryptography and encryption and some computer science and game theory that is sort of beyond my, my mere legal mind to, to fully grasp, um, it, 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 let's, let's start with the, with the assumption that you own 10 Bitcoin. Um, we don't need to get into the sort of whole history of it. But on the blockchain, there would be that history, and it would be verifiable by somebody. Uh, by anybody, by everybody. And so you would then send that, say, 10 Bitcoin to me, and that transaction would be 
written to the blockchain and it would be secured on the blockchain in a way that it couldn't be changed later. So uh, everybody could see that a, a transaction has occurred from you who own the 10 Bitcoin and then you've transferred it to me. You no longer have the right to transfer it to anybody else and I, and I now control it. And that's evident on the blockchain. And so is there any idea of how many financial transactions or what portion of financial transactions in the world actually involve a virtual currency like Bitcoin? Well, my sense, and I haven't gone and looked up the exact numbers on this, but my sense is that almost no one is using virtual currency or Bitcoin for sort of routine transactions today. Um, In fact, most of the people who buy and sell Bitcoin are doing so more as a store of value, like kind of the way you would buy and sell gold, or, or really just as sort of day trading speculators. Um, and there's, there are also uses that involve uh, illicit activity. Um, so I, I don't want to make it suggest that it's all crooks and speculators, um, but that's an element of the ecospace. And uh, there are a few kind of day-to-day transactions, but you don't see people buying cups of coffee or you know, going to the hardware store to pick up something and buying it with Bitcoin. So I'm curious about how Bitcoin's valued, right? If you have speculators in the market, then presumably the value of Bitcoin is variable and you can make money uh, over time. So how do you value, like, how much one Bitcoin is worth? Well, I'm not a Bitcoin speculator. Uh, (laughs) So I may not be the best person to to answer that question. But I, I think the simple answer is supply and demand, um, just like most things in the world. Um, the sort of One of the uh, interesting things about Bitcoin is that mathematically there is a limited supply, and that allows there to be a, a kind of a supply and demand uh, economic process that, that arrives at a, at a value. So uh, there are only 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be produced according to the software that uh, is behind it. And they will be produced on a schedule uh, over the next, uh, I forget exactly what year it is, but it's somewhere, uh, you know, 100 and, I think it may be the year 2140. I feel like it's 2140. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and so you know that there are only going to be that many and you know the rate at which they'll be produced. And, and that helps to drive uh, the price. Um, but at the end of the day, like so many other things in life, um, it's sort of an, an act of faith or belief that it has value. Um, why do Beanie Babies and baseball cards have value? I, I don't know. <laughs> I was just about to point out the Beanie Baby example. someone else that wants them. Why, why does gold have value? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that it's actually all that useful. Right. I guess you can make some pretty things out of it. But that's not why it has its value. It's just historically uh, acquired this sort of special uh, sort of place in our our sense of what's valuable, kind of like silver or platinum or other things. So do you think these virtual currencies will replace what we use as money today? Um, Will I prefer to use Bitcoin or another virtual currency over the U.S. dollar at some point, do you think? I think it'll be, um, it will not be the U.S. dollar (laughs) that is displaced first. It's probably going to be the Venezuelan peso or whatever the currency is in Zimbabwe or some country where there's a lot of volatility and a much lower level of trust in the currency of that country. Because what Bitcoin gives you is the ability to to transfer money peer-to-peer 
without going through a bank and without relying on the government to sort of set the value of the money. And so where it will make sense first as a kind of currency, a day-to-day currency, will be in places where, you know, the the available currency doesn't really fulfill that uh, function well. So just going back for a minute, the Bitcoin algorithm was supposedly written by a person named Satoshi, who has never been fully identified, or we don't know who he is as we sit here He today. or she or they. Or they. Uh, or whether or not it was orchestrated by some foreign government that would like to undermine the value of the dollar in the fullness of time or anything like that. We really don't know. And plenty of people have claimed to be Satoshi. And apparently there is a guy named Satoshi somewhere in California um, who has that name, who denies being that person as well. Um, but I think that's what we're talking about. It's a, it's a bit of a, um, I guess apocryphal is not exactly the right word here. Um, it's mysterious. It's, it's a mysterious. mysterious. <laughs> there's actually there's a Netflix uh, documentary, if you subscribe to Netflix, on this whole, it's like an hour and a half movie on you know who Satoshi Nakamoto is and the whole kind of... I will have to see that. (laughs) I will definitely do that. I wouldn't say it's a good first date movie, but maybe second or third date. Well, it depends on what kind of first date, right? Um, (laughs) um, So, but there are non-currency applications of the blockchain that I think are just rocks. I mean, I don't don't want to speak for, this is my personal opinion, but it seems to me like there are other applications that make perfect sense. Do you want to talk a little bit about what those are and why it is that they're working so incredibly well? Yeah, and I'm... Look, I, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on all the technological aspects of it, but the things that excite me about blockchain are really not Bitcoin. Um, I, I'm personally not a you know kind of a day trader type, so that doesn't really appeal to me. What What's interesting to me is um, the sort of the social impact of the technology, and, and a lot of that is more potential um, than real today, but I think it's it's a real potential. Um, and so, uh, for example, um, the ability of people who are currently unbanked, um, which by some estimates is two to three billion people in the world, who are simply shut out of the legacy, the current banking system, because they just don't qualify. They can't get a credit card. They can't get a bank account. Many of them, however, can get a cell phone. Uh, and increasingly, they, they do have access to cell phones. And if you have a cell phone, you can participate in... Um, you have a lawyer? No, I'm just kidding. You have a cell phone, you have a cell phone, you have a lawyer. You can dial 1-800-I'll-sue-for-you. You are set. Yeah. Okay. No, but if you have a cell phone, you can, you can basically be your own bank right. with cryptocurrency. Um, and you can transact with other people, and you can transact across borders um, just using your cell phone. I think that's really cool. So, you know, an example that I've, I've heard others talk about is, uh, for instance, let's say you're a, you know, a, a, na- a Filipino nanny working in Manhattan, and you earn some U.S. dollars, and you want to send some money to your mother in Manila. Um, you could go down to Western Union, and you could get a, um, uh, you know, a, a wire from Western Union, and and transfer that money through the normal Western Union system, it would probably take a week to 10 days to get there, and you'd probably pay, I don't know, 10 15% to have it arrive. But if both mom and daughter, and mom in the Philippines and daughter in New York, have a Bitcoin wallet on their cell phone, which they could easily could have, 
Um, the daughter can just sort of send $1,000 of Bitcoin directly to mom's wallet. It's instantaneous. And there's actually a service now in, in Manila where you can call, sort of like Uber, you can call a money changer to come to your house, and he or she will get there within an hour or two. Uh, and at that point, they will transfer the Bitcoin from mom's cell phone to the money changer's cell phone, and the money changer, changer will give mom Filipino pesos. Um, generally taking, I don't know, 2 to 3% fee for that. So the whole transaction happens in, you know, a matter of hours, and the cost of it is a fraction of what it would be normally. Uh, and these are people that are otherwise really unable to participate efficiently uh, in an international sort of financial system. So that's just one sort of small example. There are a whole bunch of other things which are, you know, more complicated, I suppose, to explain, but in some ways more exciting. Uh, if you use blockchain technology, theoretically, you can um, secure identity in a way that would allow voting by cell phones. And if you think about what that would do to uh, the rate at which, say, young people vote in this country, where I think only about one in five people under the age of 25 vote. Okay, cybersecurity bells and whistles going on in my head. Well, but, but the point is that if you if you use the encryption and the hashing and the consensus algorithms in a, in a way that uh, I can't quite describe to you yet, maybe hasn't been fully developed, but it's being piloted, you, you have the potential to have secure mechanisms for voting. So that would be, an, or you have mechanisms for uh, a government um, uh, registry of land records right. that can't be that can't be messed with by a corrupt politician. Right? Yeah, um, and, and and all kinds of other um, the uh, the delivery of foreign aid or charity to let's say a, an area that's being you know recovering from a hurricane. More than fifty percent of the charity that was uh, donated to Haiti in the wake of the twenty ten earthquake got siphoned off by corrupt people along the way. If you had all of that on a blockchain, you would have transparency and immutability and traceability and audibility in a way that you don't have right now. And you'd be able to see exactly where all the money went. And you could you could trace it to its end use. So those are those are just some. I can go on at at length on this stuff. I mean, that's important. Interesting things. The the, the deed records and the property stuff is working um, effectively in Central America at this time, right? Um, I think it's being piloted. I wouldn't say it's there's a widespread adoption. Estonia, Honduras. There have been some. There have been some uh, attempts. There's still a lot that needs to be done to refine the technology. And and there's also some talk about um, linking that to the distribution of prescription opioids in order to get a handle on where these drugs are going um, to make sure that this, you know, stems the sort of wave of opioid addiction in the United States as well. So that is hopeful. And I guess there's always some. There's also some talk about embedding verification nodes uh, in transfers of property that might be export controlled um, in order to sort of mm-hmm. track that kind of thing. So that's all, that sounds very promising and, and I don't know what the degree of efficacy is. Um, so we, we're, we're seeing all of these um, uh, great applications potentially in the making. But do we really need this, right? Like, this is the this is what you. I I know I'm going to sound like a luddite, right? But this is the first thing you know. My parents said, "Do you really need a cell phone?" And now I can't really imagine like you know not having one, right? My, do we really need GPS? Well, 
But I, I want to ask about blockchain. Those were Senator Kennedy's words back on June 8th of 2017. <laughs> Do we really need it? Who needs it? Right. Right. But, you know, I'm going to ask the provocative question because I, I want to know. We do have secure ways of uh, keeping track of land records. Maybe they haven't made it to Central America, but, you know, we have, like, record-keeping systems that are reliable and safe now. We have Venmo, right? We have, like, all these other cash app kind of applications where I can transfer U.S. dollars instead of another, instead of trans translating it into another currency and then having to, like, translate it back into a different currency, right? I can just Venmo or do a bank-to-bank transfer, right? So why is blockchain superior to some of the things that we already have around? Well, I think that's a really good question that everybody in the blockchain space has to keep asking is like what is the problem that that we're trying to solve solve, and is blockchain technology the the right solution for it because their centralized databases actually work very well in lots of circumstances and they're they're much more efficient than decentralized databases in terms of you know trying to sort of figure out what the data should be there's one person one person this you know one entity they decide it's very efficient um, <laughs> democracy both in political realms and in you know computer systems is sort of cumbersome and time consuming and consensus <laughs> mechanisms take a long time so it's a really important question to ask why and, and to always be pressure testing it um, there is sort of a Luddite quality, though, to people <laughs> who ask the question, I right? I mean, you know, do you really need email? I suppose not. You could just send a letter, right? I, that worked fine for the first, uh, you know, all but the last 50 years or 30 years of human civilization. <laughs> you know, we, we got along fine, right? So I don't know what it, what it means to say you need it. Um, I, I, think, I think it's not the right question for members of Congress or politicians generally to be asking. I don't think, and this maybe I sound more like a libertarian than a Luddite here, I don't think it's really the government's place to ask society or the next generation, do you really need this new technology? We'll let the marketplace and we'll let the the world decide. The, The reality is the need for it is more powerful in parts of the world that you know, our members of Congress don't live in and don't have to deal with. We're going to end this week's episode with Stephen Bunnell here. Join us again next week as we talk about the risks or potential illegal uses of blockchain and virtual currencies. And we hope to see all of our listeners on November 1st and 2nd at the annual review of National Security Law Conference here in Washington, D.C. The registration will be in the notes to this podcast. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Remember, listening to a podcast is informative, so keep listening, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Again, don't miss the annual review conference November 1st and 2nd. But check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or on Facebook in the meantime. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.